This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 1, The Prehistoric World. Episode 3, Homo Habilis. Last time on the History of the World podcast, we looked at the Australopithecines. We looked at the archaeological discoveries that led to our understanding of these pre-human animals and began to start having an idea about their physical stature. We learned that although being bipedal, that they would have spent a lot of their time in trees, but would have been subject to environmental pressures, forcing them to come out of the trees and learn how to adapt to life on the ground. We investigated how difficult it is for scientists to confidently classify whether it is our direct ancestor. There is a lack of evidence in the fossil record. But we did establish that it was more ape-like than human-like in its appearance. We looked at how it had to evolve to become the robust paranthropines in one instance and the first supposed type of human in another instance. Homo habilis is thought to be the first living human species. One thing that we associate with all human species is that they are skilled stone tool producers. So that would insinuate that Homo habilis manufactured the first stone tools. Last time we were questioning whether Australopithecines had the intelligence, dexterity and requirement to manufacture stone tools themselves. The reason why we ask this question is because we believe that subsequent species, chronologically speaking, did use tools. So let's discover how we do know this. Olduvai Gorge So let us discover Olduvai Gorge and why it is so significant to the story of Homo habilis. Olduvai Gorge is a gorge in the landscape which can be found in the country of Tanzania. We visited Tanzania in the last podcast when we discussed the Laetoli footprints which were discovered by a team led by Mary Leakey in the 1970s. Laetoli was discovered purely because Leakey, with her late husband Lewis, had worked at the nearby Olduvai Gorge for many years. Let's see why they were working there. If we travel back to the year 1913, Tanzania was a part of a German East African colony which they called Deutsch Ostafrika, literally German East Africa. Now let me introduce a gentleman called Hans Reck. Hans Reck was born in 1886 in the town of Würzburg in the relatively new German Empire. Reck was successful academically, studying natural history at university level. Reck became very active in a hands-on capacity in his field and his studies eventually led him to Deutsch-Ostafrika in the early 1910s to study some of the many dinosaur fossils which had been discovered there. It was late in the year 1913 that an excavation from the Olduvai Gorge had been brought to Reck's attention. It was some skeletal remains of a man. Reck determined 
that this had to be the remains of a prehistoric man and he went back to Berlin to publish an article on the discovery. Radiometric dating was not available back then so Rex's article was subject to question. Now it was 1914 in Germany. This means that the Great War broke out and although Reck returned to Deutsche Ostafrika to continue his work, it was almost impossible in the shadow of the East African campaign. British and Belgian troops advanced from the Congo in the west as part of the East African campaign. Deutsche Ostafrika was ultimately defeated and at some point Reck was taken prisoner. After the war, Deutsche Ostafrika was split apart and the main part, and that containing Olduvai Gorge, became part of the British-administered territory of Tanganyika. In 1927, a young Lewis Leakey tracked down Hans Reck, who had since been allowed to return to Olduvai Gorge. The two of them together continued looking for more artefacts linked to the mysterious skeleton now called the Olduvai Man. Sadly, and despite the excavation of many tools at the site, Rex suffered in later life from ill health, and the mystery of Olduvai Man is still debated and to some extent was superseded by other more significant discoveries, not least of all by Lewis Leakey himself. It was in 1959 Lewis's wife Mary, who we are quite familiar with from our previous podcast, went exploring while Lewis was feeling under the weather back at camp she stumbled across a prehistoric skull. The skull was noted for its sagittal crest, which is a ridge which spans over the top of the skull from the forehead to the back of the head. This crest would be linked muscularly to an enlarged, powerful, protruding jaw, somewhat gorilla-like. And it was at around this time that radiometric dating started becoming available, and this animal called the Nutcracker Man, was dated to approximately 1.75 million years ago. The following year, 1960, Lewis and Mary's eldest son Jonathan, who himself was a young adult, discovered some fragmented bones of a skeleton once again dated to approximately 1.75 million years ago, but they were quite unlike the bones of the Nutcracker Man. For the sake of discussion, we will refer to this second animal as Johnny's child. All of these discoveries were made at the famed Olduvai Gorge, which just for the record is supposed to be called Olduvai Gorge. Olduvai was the original German name based on a mishearing of the actual name Olduvai, which is the local name of a specific flowering plant which is abundant at the gorge. So maybe in time, the name will change back to what it's supposed to be. Nutcracker Man and Johnny's Child So let us compare the stories of Nutcracker Man and Johnny's Child and see if they tell us anything about the evolution of Australopithecines into more modern animals. So the Nutcracker Man was discovered first. It was clearly bipedal but clearly did not have a lot in common with modern humans and therefore could not be considered as human. Potentially linked ancestrally to human evolution, but not clearly a human itself. Mary and Lewis Leakey originally called this animal 
Zinjanthropus boisei. Zinjanthropus, after the archaic name of the Kenya and Tanzania coastline of East Africa called Zinjim. Boisei is attributed in acknowledgement of the American businessman Charles Watson Boyce, who sponsored the Leakey's expedition to Olduvai Gorge. Johnny's child, on the other hand, was noted for having a brain capacity around 20% larger than the Nutcracker Man. Johnny's child did not have the exaggerated jaws of Nutcracker Man. It had jaws much more resembling of modern humans, including teeth that were much more comparable in size to modern humans, where Nutcracker Man's teeth were relatively huge. It was also noted that Johnny's child's hands would have had the ability to manufacture stone tools, with the hands being somewhat dexterous. It was all of these things, and not least of all the factor relating to the dexterous hands, that encouraged the Leakies to name Johnny's child as Homo habilis. Habilis referring to the hands being very able, and more significantly Homo referring to it being of the same genus as Homo sapiens modern humans. As expected, this caused huge controversy. Anything called Homo would need to be closely related to modern humans, as Homo sapiens is the base type species for anything called Homo, and Homo habilis was as distant from Homo sapiens as any other animal categorised as Homo previously. Still to this very day, Homo habilis is challenged as a member of the Homo genus, with some believing it to be still an Australopithecine. Certainly Nutcracker Man, or Zinge, as he became more affectionately known after being categorised as Zinjanthropus boisei, had taken a different scientific route as one would expect. He was moved into a genus called Paranthropus, which had been created by the Scottish paleontologist Robert Broom in the 1930s for his own personally named Paranthropus robustus. All Paranthropus species are now considered to be Australopithecine and as such are referred to as the robust Australopithecines to distinguish their differing morphology. Those animals belonging to the Australopithecus genus are the ones that are referred to as the gracile Australopithecines just for distinction. One undeniable and inescapable fact is that Paranthropus boisei and Homo habilis lived during a similar time period and in close proximity to each other. It would not be possible, with the considerable differences between each other, for one to have descended from the other. Therefore, the retrospectively naive method of thinking that modern humans evolved from a common ape ancestor in a linear fashion was now completely out of the question. Human evolution is far more complex. Nothing that resembles Paranthropus, a cousin of Australopithecus and Homo, has been discovered that dates more recent than 1.2 million years ago, and nothing that could present a case for it evolving into something else either. Paranthropus was a failed evolutionary experiment that ended up going extinct. The story of the Nutcracker Man is over. Australopithecus or Homo habilis. So now we will discuss exactly how human Homo habilis really is. 
So I have a number of reference books for which I refer to for material for these podcasts. I have one particularly beautiful book called History of the World, originally edited by the celebrated historian John Whitney Hall. I could describe this book as the most impressive history book that I have in my library. This book makes a conscious decision to call Homo habilis, Australopithecus habilis, despite Lewis Leakey's categorisation of the species that he discovered as of the Homo genus. Accepting that the robust Australopithecines died out as Paranthropus, the gracile Australopithecines quite probably evolved into Homo habilis, but this particular book insists upon Homo habilis being included in with the gracile Australopithecines. So let's have a look at the physical characteristics of Homo habilis and see if we can determine why this is so contentious. Hall's book states that Homo habilis had a larger brain than Australopithecus africanus. It also states that Homo habilis had smaller molar teeth than Australopithecus africanus. But other than these two aspects, the two animals are actually fairly similar. For example, it is suggested that both animals, even though bipedal, would not have walked completely upright like modern humans, or even other more modern animals of the Homo genus. It also claims that although Homo habilis has a more precise hand grip, that its hands were still morphologically suited to tree climbing than, say, overarm spear throwing. The fact that Homo habilis only stood at just over four feet in height would suggest that its diet was also very similar to the diet thought to have been associated with Australopithecus, that being more vegetative than meat-eating. However, a counter-argument to suggest that Homo habilis was more significantly advanced than Australopithecus is the fact that a comparative abundance of stone tools accompany Homo habilis fossils. This has been linked to encephalisation, which is the process of Homo's brain size increasing quite rapidly during its evolutionary process. This deserves a more thorough explanation. Roughly speaking, during that period from 3 million years ago when Australopithecines were abundant to 2 million years ago when Homo habilis had fully evolved, the brain capacity increased from around one third of a modern human to one half. This can be considered as significant encephalisation. Some scientists have suggested something called the expensive tissue hypothesis. To explain the expensive tissue hypothesis without going into a deep biological commentary in order for the brain size to increase, encephalisation, there has to be a compromise of one of the other expensive organs of the body. In this case, it's the gastrointestinal tract which fundamentally is the stomach and intestines. A means of compromising the gastrointestinal tract is to improve the diet and this is where the stone tools come in. It is thought that the stone tools would have been used to butcher meat and make it a more relevant part of the diet, which would have been required to improve the efficiency of the gastrointestinal tract and therefore allow the brain to have access to a higher metabolic rate and therefore increase its size. Basically, you have to take from one to give to the other. This is one of the fundamental arguments that suggests that Homo habilis is more like a modern human than it is like an Australopithecine, 
and therefore deserves to belong in the Homo genus. Now, these are all just fascinating arguments both for and against the Havilis inclusion into the genus of Homo. It is still an ongoing argument and the beauty of it is that we can all take part and give our own opinion. Who else was around two million years ago? Let's travel back down to the south of the continent of Africa again, to the limestone caves of South Africa. During the last podcast, we were at Tong, where Tong Child, later to be classified as Australopithecus africanus, was discovered. This time, we are four hours east from there, just 40 kilometres northwest of Johannesburg in the Sterkfontein Caves. A partial skull found in the caves back in 1977 has been proposed as a distinct species of Homo called Homo gautengensis, named after the Gauteng province of South Africa where the Sterkfontein Caves are located. Homo gautengensis dates to around 1.9 million years ago and is suggested to have eaten a very plant-rich diet compared to Homo habilis. However, it is believed to have still spent a considerable amount of time in the trees, not least of all, to sleep safely from predators. However, the American-born paleoanthropologist Lee Rogers Berger declared yet another hominin species dating to a similar period following its discovery in the Malapa fossil site, not more than 10 miles from the Steck Fontaine in 2008. He named the fossilised bones as belonging to an animal called Australopithecus sediba, which he claimed to be a tool-using Australopithecus. Throw in the two living species of Paranthropus that were believed to be alive during the same period, and this illustrates scientists' belief that many different species of hominins were alive simultaneously, and what's more is that in some areas they were actually living alongside each other. All of these animals were bipedal, feeding off the vegetation and in some cases, and to differing degrees, were eating meat and also finding refuge by climbing and sleeping in trees. Some were certainly manufacturing stone tools with which they could carve meat from dead animals and due to the encephalisation which was making their brains ever more powerful, they may have had basic social skills. Social skills. How good was Homo habilis at social communication? Applying the theory of social skills to Homo habilis is a very difficult task. However, it is a subject which is very important in the field of anthropological study. When did humans develop advanced social skills? Could Homo habilis individuals communicate with each other effectively? Did they have any speech or linguistic skills? To approach that question, I will introduce a gentleman by the name of Philip V. Tobias. Tobias was born in Durban, South Africa in 1925. He was very successful academically, studying in a number of fields at Witts University, the very same university where Raymond Dart from our last podcast was previously appointed. He graduated with a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery in 1950 and went on to be awarded a Doctor of Science for his work within the field of paleoanthropology. Tobias worked with the Leakeys 
and was closely associated with their discovery of Homo habilis. It was Tobias's belief that not only was Homo habilis a skilled toolmaker, but that Homo habilis also had some linguistic capability. This goes against some experts' views that linguistic capability is something of a modern development that should only be attributed to modern humans. Speech and linguistic skills probably depend on two main factors. Firstly, the animal in question needs to have the intelligence to do so. Secondly, the animal in question needs to have the physical capability to do so. In other words, I might have the intelligence to play the piano, but if I have no hands, then I will not have the physical capability. Therefore, in order for Homo habilis to verbally communicate, it needs to have an advanced vocal physicality. In my very humble and uneducated point of view, it is a known fact that chimpanzees have a complex system of vocalisations with which they can communicate with each other. It's also worth noting that the planet was undergoing climate change as the planet entered the quaternary glaciation, cooling down the temperature of the planet and as a consequence changing the environment. This in turn has added pressure to the adaptability of species and ones that are able to adapt have survived. The fact is that it is likely that Homo habilis with its encephalized brain did have an ability to communicate socially, albeit in a very basic fashion, and this would have surely added to its survival prospects. Encephalization. Let us investigate the process of hominin brain size expansion, otherwise called encephalization. Now it may seem like that we have made a gentle transition from the Australopithecines of 3 million years ago to the first Homo genus animal of 2 million years ago. We have mentioned encephalization a lot during this podcast as one of the most important changes during Australopithecus evolving into Homo. But now we are crossing that threshold. This whole encephalization thing is going to go out of control. During the last 2 million years, Homo's brain capacity has increased at an unprecedented rate. This is the beginning of our journey to becoming the complex and conscious human being that we are today. So we can tie everything together that has been discussed already into this fabric. Starting with the Australopithecines, we can determine that the brain capacity was around 28 cubic inches. Now, please forgive the imperial measurements, but I want to demonstrate the growth in a simple method numerically, as this equates to 460 cubic centimetres. 28 units of something is probably easier to visualise than 460 units. So from 28 cubic inches 3 million years ago, we move forward a million years to 2 million years ago and move on to the robust Australopithecines or the Paranthropines whose brain size is around 32 cubic inches. This is a notable increase but not as much as their contemporaries Homo habilis whose brain size is around 40 cubic inches. To go from 28 cubic inches to 40 cubic inches in 1 million years is substantial but this is just the beginning. 
when you consider that the modern human's brain size is around 90 cubic inches, it shows that we still have a long journey ahead of us with a lot of development. So far we have tackled the expensive tissue theory which has supported the idea of improved diet meaning less energy required to break down foods and in turn more energy devoted to brain development. With the brain size increasing this also has an impact on the amount of time it takes for the brain to grow into a fully mature organ. Therefore in simple terms it means that childhood accounts for a longer percentage of the lifetime of the more recent animal. It will take a longer period of time for the brain to grow to its full size. This in turn increases the requirement for pair bonding, so the parental responsibility of the animal is a more fundamental requirement. While the baby animal requires more time to fully mature, the parent has to devote more time to the development of the child's maturity. This will require a much higher quality of social skill and interaction between the parents and the extended family group. In summary, this ties everything together. Survival of the fittest and subsequent evolution of a modernising human in a changing world climate requires a more intelligent animal. The successful animal was able to improve its diet by developing tools that could enable it to eat a much more protein-rich meat-based diet to allow for encephalisation to occur and as such there needed to be a close social bond between these animals for them to be able to allow their children to develop into the more advanced animal, safe from predation and other dangers and able to learn and comprehend the advanced skills needed to survive on this rapidly modernising planet. Home. Something that interested me when studying this species of animal was a concept of Homo habilis living in a home, a safe haven where an animal can return to at the end of the day. If we go back to Olduvai Gorge and the work of Mary Leakey, she was particularly interested in some of the findings at the DK site. There she discovered a rock ring. Basically, this was a group of rocks specifically placed in a ring shape on the ground. Trying to understand its purpose, she would compare it to the behaviour of modern nomadic people who create rock rings as the foundation of a small thatched dwelling in which one can obtain shelter. Some of the other factors that may contribute to the feasibility of such a theory would be that a lot of stone tools were found in caches, gathered together as if they were deliberately stored. Another interesting factor is that as humans evolved, the human baby would be less likely to naturally cling to its mother as it would surely be losing that tree-dwelling grip for a more purposeful grip. Therefore, it would seem reasonable that the mother would have to put the baby down somewhere safe rather than have to physically carry it everywhere. As you can well imagine, scientists also challenge this theory. Some say that Homo habilis would not have been able to create a base for too long as the threat of predation was very real and it would only be a matter of time before a predator would become interested in such a dwelling and quickly destroy it. If climbing trees was still a possibility, then surely it would have been much more practical to go up the tree than create an elaborate dwelling. 
it does seem quite likely that Homo habilis would have been able to and would have put to use such shelters, even if they were not being used as homes. They could have been used as base camps for storage of food and tools and even for identifying meeting points if they exist in the cooperative groups. If Homo habilis had managed to scavenge a carcass from another animal, then he would have wanted to put it somewhere safe. Either way, this is something for which more evidence could continually come to light, so it might be the case that in the coming years we may get more answers to our questions. Looking forwards. This development of human physicality, mentality and ability will continue. Humans are becoming more physically upright. Their brains are growing and their skills are developing. The world is changing and humans are changing with it. Next time, we are going to look at the next major evolution of the Homo species, Homo erectus. So as ever, if you want to email the podcast, feel free to do so. The email address is historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Mail is spelled M-A-I-L, as you'd expect with an email. So historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The blog is up and running and I'm adding material to it all the time, including helpful maps which help you to basically get an idea of where all these discoveries that I'm talking about have been made. So Olderby Gorge, etc. will be on a map on the blog and the blog can be found at historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Just to let you know what's coming up in the future, Homo erectus, there are a number of factors that we haven't discussed in too much detail, which are the stone tool creations, the prehistoric stone tool creations. So podcast five, we're going to be concentrating a little bit more on that aspect. So we are going to sort of go back over one or two subjects such as speech and language, Paleolithic art, and ice age is the climate we're going to look more closely at these aspects and put some more information into these podcasts and these histories so something to look forward to anyway that's enough from me thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next week all being well thank you the history of the world podcast is available on many different podcast platforms so please Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr.